Amen. Well, it's wonderful to be back with you this morning. I was away with my wife uh, last weekend. We had the privilege of being involved in a wedding uh, for uh, John and Amber Alden. Many of you know John as he kind of grew up in the church. Of course, the Alden family are still a part of our church. It was a very special opportunity for me to be a part of that and also to have a wonderful weekend with my wife in Lynchburg and we did a lot of fun things and one of the fun things we did was able to tune in and hear Josiah give his first sermon and what a great blessing that was to have that young man faithfully handle God's words part of the members meeting this afternoon we're going to vote on not letting Josiah leave Uh, we're not actually going to do that but it's a temptation But we were well fed, weren't we, last week as we heard from God's Word, and that's a great blessing. Well, let's turn our hearts to God's Word together. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand with me. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls... By your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. And we're going to be thinking together in a particular way about another characteristic of a Christian. What are Christians like? What are Christians to be characterized by? God's word is filled with truth about this. And we're going to see this morning that Christians are to be characterized by love. So I thought about a way to introduce the sermon this morning. I thought about what we've all just kind of lived through over the course of the last year with the advent of COVID and the fact that it brought many new dangers into our lives. Some of those dangers were physical. For those that were older in particular, for those with pre-existing medical conditions, COVID-19 brought with it the possibility of life-threatening illness. And over time, as our society endured kind of a, a really amazing level of isolation and social distancing, COVID-19 also led to kind of some, some secondary effects, even depression and anxiety that kind of swept across our society in unprecedented levels, and that led to numerous suicides, particularly among the young, and that's a great tragedy. It's been a difficult year in many ways. But you know, as we went through this this, um, very difficult season of COVID-19, we also highlighted the spiritual danger that it presented to the church. And one of the dangers that it presented is that it had the, the great ability to divide believers because Christians were were somewhat confused and we were divided in terms of our opinion about the best way to respond to this threat. And some felt that, you know, that Christian love demanded that we should pursue every possible uh, safety precaution so that we could help others, so that we could protect others. And that was an act of Christian love. Others felt that COVID-19 was a bit overplayed and that the most loving thing that they could do was to continue to live their life as normal and to encourage others to do the same. And so you see there were two opinions And it would have been very easy for Satan to have divided the body among those two opinions. So praise God that he didn't permit that to happen in this church. But as we're coming out of the lockdowns and societal restrictions, it occurs to me that COVID-19 has presented yet another danger for us spiritually. 
For the past year, many of us have become accustomed to what before was really never before experienced social isolation. And over time, being separated from other people, what can happen is that can begin to feel normal. You see, but for Christians, living in isolation isn't normal. Actually, it's spiritually dangerous. It's something that we need to be on guard against. Mark Dever put it this way. He just talked about kind of the spiritual vitality and the love that you see in a church. What's it like? Well, he, he compared it to a pile of coals, hot coals kind of piled upon one another. In that pile, all the coals are giving off heat. And as they do that, they're kind of reinforcing one another. And as a result, that pile of coal, it will stay hot for a long time, even for hours. But what happens when you just take one coal and place it aside? Well, it lacks the support and the warmth of the other, and over time it very quickly actually begins to grow cold much more quickly than that pile that's together. And something very similar can happen in the life of a church. We want to be living life together as a body. We want to be enforcing one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. But if we become separated from the body, what can happen is very quickly, even imperceptibly, we can begin to grow cold to the people of God. We can become used to not being around the people of God. We can even lose the fervent love that we used to have for the church, and we can become complacent as we try to live the Christian life on our own. But here's the thing. Christians are not free to go it alone. Christians are not free to live in isolation. Christians are commanded instead to love one another. And that's really going to be the burden of the passage that we talk about this morning, this great command we've been given by the Lord God to love one another. And that love isn't to be a tepid kind of cold love. It is to be an intense love, a committed love, a fervent love. We are to love one another earnestly. That means with all that we have. And we'll see that as we study God's Word together this morning. So we're returning to our study in the book of 1 Peter. It's been several months, actually, since we have studied this book together. So I want to begin by just giving you a bit of a recap of what we've learned since we've begun the book so that we can kind of be caught up in the context of our study. If you remember, Peter spends the first part of his letter praising God. It's a wonderful thing to do in the Christian life. Begin your day praising God. Well, he begins the letter praising God and praising God in particular for God's saving work in Christ. God the Father is the one that initiated this saving work in Christ. In verses 3 to 5, we saw that Christians have been given a living hope. So all the hopes in this world are dying hopes. Everything we place our hope on in this world, we will one day lose. But Christians have been given a living hope that will last forever because our hope is Christ, and we will live with Him forever. In verses 6 to 9, we learn that we have this great spiritual inheritance before us in Christ, in glory, in heaven, and it's that reality that enables us to endure the sufferings and trials of this life. So at Christ Fellowship, we understand that the Lord will sovereignly bring suffering into our lives because He's good and He's training us for heaven. He's weaning us from this world and He's making us more like Jesus. But because we have hope, because we have an inheritance, we're able to go through those trials. We're able to endure them. We're able to even rejoice in the midst of them. And that's an amazing supernatural thing. And then in verses 10 to 12... Peter, he kind of laid out for us some rich spiritual privileges that we've received in Christ and noted that they're greater even than those that were received by the Old Testament prophets and in some ways greater even than those that are enjoyed by the holy angels. So verses 1 to 12 is just filled with ways that God has blessed us. It's filled with ways that God the Father has lavished His grace on our life in Christ. 
But then in verse 13, Peter transitioned from talking about what God had done now to talking about how we should respond. And that, by the way, is always the pattern that you'll see in the New Testament. We start with God. We start with His acts. And then from there, we learn how we're supposed to respond to our gracious God who acts to save us. In verse 13, we saw that Christians are to be characterized by hope. It says there in verse 13 that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then from verses 14 to 16, we see that believers are to be characterized by holiness. So we are children of God, and what's God like? Well, He's holy. And so we're to bear the family image, as it were. As the children of God, we're to be holy as He is holy. And then from verses 17 to 21, we focus most especially on the fact that Christians are to live a life that is characterized by a godly fear, which isn't kind of a, a servile fear, as if, you know, we have some kind of craven fear of God. It's not that, because God is our Father. But it is a God consciousness. Uh, we're living our life with God before us, the thought of God before us, and we understand that the day is coming when He will assess the way that we have lived, whether or not we have been faithful to Him. And because we have been redeemed from kind of the passing world around us by the precious blood of Christ, well, we want to live in a way that brings a smile to His face. This morning we're looking at verses 22 to 25, where we see yet another characteristic of a Christian. Brother, sister, if you're in Christ, this is who you are. This is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be characterized by love. And particularly notice in this passage... It's love for other believers. There's a special love that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ, a fervent love, an earnest love, not a weak, tepid love. We are to extend ourselves to the fullest. That's the idea. We're to lay our lives down in every possible way in order to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what this passage teaches us. So we're going to focus our hearts on three truths this morning as we look at these verses together. So three truths from verses 22 to 25. The first truth is that Christians are saved for brotherly love. Christians are saved for brotherly love. The second truth, Christians are commanded to love one another. We'll see that in the second part of verse 22. And then a third truth, God's Word is the source of the Christian's life of love. And we'll see that as we study verses 23 to 25. Let's look at that first truth together. Christians are saved for brotherly love. Take your copy of God's Word and look with me, if you will, at the first part of verse 22. And here's what Peter says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, as we said, Peter's been encouraging these believers with how they are to respond to God's grace given to them in Christ, to these great blessings that they've received in salvation. And he says that they're to be marked by hope and by holiness and by a godly fear, and now he's going to begin to talk with them about how they're to be characterized by love. Well, how does he begin that discussion? He begins by reminding them of what had happened to them when they were saved. He says that they had purified their souls there by their obedience to the truth. What's the truth? Well, the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, these believers had heard the good news about Jesus, and they had responded in obedience in the sense that they had obeyed the command of God to turn from their sins and to put their trust in Christ. You see, believing in Christ is not an option. It's a command of God. It's something that you're to do this morning if you've never done so. You're to turn from your sins and you're to put your trust in Jesus because He is the only Savior that God has provided for sinners. 
And so that is what they had done. They had obeyed God. And in doing so, there was a dramatic effect. They purified their souls. Now, that sounds a bit odd to us, doesn't it? There's Peter saying that somehow, in some way, these Christians had, had saved themselves by their actions. No. We need to remember, Christ's fellowship, that we always interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. And that's the way you understand, if you're understanding a passage correctly, is does it line up with what the rest of God's Word says? And God's Word teaches us that God saves us. We do not save ourselves. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation is of the Lord, and yet at the, at the same time, the Bible does teach that we are not robots. So there's actually a response that we make to the gospel. There's something that we do. What happens? God causes us to be born again by His Spirit, and we begin to see with new eyes. You know, for the first time, we begin to see Jesus for who He is. We hear the gospel. The Spirit works in our heart. He gives us this new life, the very life of God within. And we see Christ as a gracious Savior who's willing to save us. And we see ourselves as needy sinners who desperately need that salvation. And then we move towards Christ. We move in repentance and faith and put our trust in Him. And again, the results of that are dramatic. Peter says that by their obedience to the gospel, these believers had purified their souls. And that word purified there, it speaks of cleansing. It speaks of the forgiveness of sins. All of their sins have been washed away. And one of the amazing things about Christianity is it's not just the sins that you committed before you became a believer. No, Jesus paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And when we become a follower of Jesus, when we trust in Him, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the past sinfulness that each and every one of us are very painfully aware of, well, all of that is done. It's no more. Christ has paid for all of it. But it's more than just that they were cleansed because that word purified there, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about kind of a, a ritual purification. It's a word that was used of the Jews when they would ceremonially purify themselves in order to serve and worship God. It's a word that's used in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, when the apostle Paul purified himself in the temple before offering vows. And so the idea is that when these believers had purified their souls, it wasn't just that their sins were cleansed, but they were also being set apart for service to God, set apart to worship Him. And what would that service look like? Well, look again at your copy of God's Word. What does it look like? Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Yeah, the service that we have been set apart for, purified for, is a service of sincerely loving our brothers and sisters, truly, genuinely loving them. Let me make just kind of two observations. First, it is impossible, listen, it is impossible to faithfully live the Christian life on your own. You cannot do it. You know, even though it's changing a bit, Western culture still kind of likes the individual guy, kind of the hero that's out there on his own or her own, kind of making their own way. If you're my age, you remember you know, Rocky Balboa going up against Ivan Drago, right? This one guy against the whole world. Or maybe it was John Rambo, who looked a lot like Rocky, and he single-handedly rescued all of the American you know, POWs in Vietnam. And some Christians look at the Christian life that way. 
And they think that it's really ultimately just about me and God. So as long as I'm reading my Bible, as long as I'm praying, as long as I'm saying no to sin, as long as I'm doing good works, well, then I'm doing pretty good. God must be satisfied with this. But, but you see, God's Word doesn't let us think that way. Actually, God's Word calls us not to live life on our own, but it calls us to live life in community with other brothers and sisters. And so it's impossible to faithfully live the Christian life on your own because, of, because one of God's fundamental purposes for you and for me as those who follow Jesus is that we would love each other. And we have to be around each other in order to love each other, in order to serve each other. God has not called us to live the Christian life in isolation. He's called us to be a meaningful part of a community, the body of Christ, a local church, where we can love our flesh and blood brothers in flesh and blood ways. It is a very easy thing to be a holy person in isolation. I'll tell you, every day in my office, I am a very godly person as I sit by myself studying and reading the Bible. It gets harder when I get home. <laughs> Something happens, right? Because I'm, I'm around other sinners now, and my sinfulness comes out, and that's harder. And that's the same dynamic that you have in a church, you see. And so we're called to die to self here as we live life together with other believers so that we can pour our lives out for them. It's not easy, but you know what it is? It's worship. We're worshiping God as we love one another in the church. So the Christian who is living the Christian life on his own or her own isn't actually pleasing God. They're actually failing to fulfill one of the fundamental purposes for their salvation, a sincere brotherly love for other believers. So instead, we should be meaningfully involved in each other's lives. Yeah, we should, we should be a part of a church, should be a church where we can do that, where we can love one another and minister our spiritual gifts to help others become like Jesus. There's another observation we should see here, and that's that that love we're to demonstrate for one another should be sincere. Did you notice that word there? Peter says, for a sincere brotherly love. It's from a Greek word that literally means without hypocrisy. So we're not supposed to come to church and pretend like we love other people. No, that's Pharisee religion. Actually, we're supposed to gather with the people of God and from the heart genuinely love them and manifest that love for them in acts of service to them. I appreciated what one commentator named Edmund Clowney had to say. He said, Peter requires love for fellow Christians as the great mark of true holiness. He is not satisfied with tolerance or acceptance, far less with formalized distance. He will have love, sincere love, without pretense or hypocrisy. So in the church, brothers and sisters, we're to think of one another as family, because we are. And we're to love one another as family, because if you're a child of God, then you are my brother or you are my sister. We're to freely forgive our brothers and sisters when they sin against us. You can be a part of some kind of other social club, and if someone you know is mean to you, you just leave. That's no problem. But it's different in the church because we're brothers and sisters. We're part of a family, so there should be forgiveness. We should be pursuing reconciliation as we live closely together. We should provide for those who are in need. We should exercise hospitality, welcoming other people into our homes so that we can love them and serve them and bless them and get to know them and allow them to get to know us. And, you know, I think that's the harder of the two. You know, getting to know others, but no, actually letting them get to know us with all the warts and all the deficiencies and all the weakness, that one's harder. 
That requires humility to let them into our lives so that they can pray for us and so that they can minister to us. And we're to love each other so well that we're actually impacted by what's going on in each other's lives. That's the command to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And that requires that we would love one another sincerely. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, 9, we must let love be genuine. Genuine. Peter has more to teach us about the life of love here, and that's what we see in this second truth that we're going to study together this morning. Christians are commanded to love one another. So look, if you will, at the second part of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now this little phrase, if you will, it teaches us such rich truth about the kind of love that we're supposed to demonstrate for one another in the church. It's only six words in the original language. But it is just chocked full of truth about the kind of love that we're supposed to have. First, it teaches us that we are to love one another with God's love. The word for love there, it's the familiar Greek word agape. If you've been in the church for a while, you've heard that word over and over. It's the word that's used in the New Testament for the love of God. This is the love that God himself demonstrates, demonstrated most particularly in giving us his son. You see, it's a selfless love. It's a self-giving love that's focused not on what I can get from you, but on how I can serve you, on how I can lay down my life for you, on how I can minister to your needs. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is the very love of God. This is something, listen, that God must produce in us. This isn't something that we can, by willpower, just produce. We can't white-knuckle this. We actually need to humbly seek God and ask that He would fill our hearts by His Spirit with His love for others so that we would love them with the very love of God. And what's it like? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And that is the kind of love that God is calling this church, Christ Fellowship, brothers and sisters, to demonstrate towards one another. That's what we are to give and to show one another. Second, we learn that this love for other believers is not optional. So Peter is not giving us good advice. He's not saying, hey, if you do this, this will help your church be a nicer place on Sunday morning. He's saying, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, and that word love there is a command. In other words, it's a requirement. So, so love is not a lifestyle choice for the believer. Love is a command of God that's given to us so that we would demonstrate this to one another, that we would indeed love each other. It's the great command that Jesus himself gave to his disciples just before he went to the cross. And I think that's important because what is Jesus going to do on the cross? He's going to demonstrate in its fullness what this love looks like, right? No, no love is greater than that. A man would lay down his life for his friend. This is what he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, this is who we are as the people of God. We're to be characterized by this love. Third, we see that the love must be fervent. Look what Peter says there. He says, love one another earnestly. That word translated earnestly there, it's actually a physiological term. It refers, to, it refers to kind of stretching a muscle to the furthest of its capacity. 
so that it can literally do no more. It's going to the limit. It's pouring itself out fully in every way. It's the word that was used of the Lord Jesus' prayer when he prayed earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane, even as he is sweating great drops of blood. He's going to the limit there. In Acts 12, 5, this is the word that's used for earnest in the earnest way that the church was praying together so that Peter would be released from prison. And, of course, God answered that earnest prayer. And, again, the idea is that Christians must never grow cold in their love for the brothers and sisters. We're not free to just come to church on Sunday, sit back, watch, and leave. No, we are commanded to love one another earnestly, to move towards others in love in that way. We are commanded to love, listen, with all we have. Now, who's not convicted by that? So easy for us to come and be around other brothers and sisters and hold something back, isn't it? kind of protect that part of our heart that's been hurt before? No. But this is the call of God. This is the call of God that we would just open our hearts to others and trust to God, and we would love them in the very same way that God has loved us. I see this kind of love in the way that Sherry Coker pours herself out for the women she counsels at CareNet. I see this love in the way that Adam Messer and Ron Stoll and Scott Mallett spend so many hours praying for you and making decisions as elders in the church as we seek God's wisdom to have this be a healthy, fruitful, useful church. I see this kind of love in Stephen and Megan Doan and in Paul and Jacinda Cyrils who just regularly open their home and invite other people into their home so that they can demonstrate love to them. And I praise God that I see this kind of love in the lives of many of you. I'm not, I'm not you, know, you know, scratching the bottom of the barrel trying to find out who's loving. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And here's the thing. We have room to grow. As a church, we can continue to press on in this way. May God continue his good work in us. Fourth, we learn that we must love one another willingly. That's what Peter means when he says, from a pure heart. The idea is we're not just supposed to love others because there's some kind of external pressure that's kind of forcing us to do that. Instead, no, this kind of love is supposed to come out of us. It's a willing love. It's a free love that flows from our hearts towards others. We're not called to a legalistic love. We're called to an authentic, genuine, sincere love. That's what we're called to demonstrate. So look at this command. It's an amazing command, isn't it, for believers? That we're being commanded to love one another with the very love of God. It's a very dramatic thing. So what might that practically look like? You know, we actually have an inspired example of what that looks like. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 2. You know, I, Peter had this picture of love in his mind, but you know, Peter had experienced this early on in the life of the church. In Acts chapter 2, we get this inspired account of what it was like in those early days of the spirits being poured out on the people and they're coming into the church of Jerusalem there and they're living life together closely. Listen to what it was like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see that? What a picture of love, of heavenly love. There's nothing like that in this world. This world is all kind of focused on what can I get from others, and as long as it's a good deal for me, I'm going to stay there. But as soon as it stops being a good deal for me, well, I'm going to move on somewhere else. But here you have a community of people that are committed to one another, and notice that they're committed to being with one another. They're committed to living life together with one another. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they were together. No one was allowed to be in need. No one went without. Instead, in costly love, they poured themselves out for others so that all needs were met in the assembly. And do you notice that they were glad as they did so? They had glad and generous hearts because joy is a, a byproduct of this love. It's a byproduct of walking in obedience. And this is what God wants for our church. He wants us to be a church that's together. He wants us to be a church that is committed to loving and serving one another in this way. But this, friends, is precisely where what we have just lived through is so, so spiritually dangerous. Because again, for the past year, we've been subjected to this unprecedented level of isolation. And so for many, isolation has begun to feel normal. But you see, it can't be normal for Christians. It can't be normal for us. It's not God's pattern for the church. Now, due to health concerns, there may be a time when it's important and good to separate from other people as an act of prudence and love. But what we must understand as a church is that that cannot last forever. That cannot become the new normal. You see, the normal is this. The normal is Acts chapter 2. The normal is the command of 1 Peter chapter 2, that we would be involved in one another's lives and we would be living life together in this way. And that is what we need to pursue as we're coming out of this season of COVID-19. Now, we want to be wise as we do this. We want to be wise as our society reopens, yes, but we want to keep this goal before us. We don't want to forget what we've been called to. We don't want to forget the command of God that we would love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's the goal that's before us. So let me ask you a question. Is that your goal? So how is your love for other believers doing? As I've talked with pastors, um, I've heard many of them say that they've heard comments from members of the church who say that they feel disconnected from the church. Well, why is that? Well, friends, it's not a hard answer or it's not a hard question. It's because much of it is because of what we've just lived through when we have been forced apart. And so we feel disconnected. That's very normal. But it can't stay that way. Now, whether we've been present in services or, or not present in services, you see, it's still possible to be disconnected from close fellowship. Whether you're here on Sunday or not here on Sunday, it's still possible to be disconnected from close fellowship because this is something that the Holy Spirit has to produce in us and push us towards so that we would live closely with other Christians. So our goal as we're coming out of this season is to wisely reconnect. We want to wisely reconnect with one another. We want to move towards one another in love and in grace and in understanding as we seek to, by God's grace, 
mirror, picture, obey what we're being commanded to do here in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I praise God for the way this is already happening through community groups and Bible studies and just regular demonstrations of hospitality. You know what would make this a special church? Is if we were all committed to welcoming each other into our homes. That would make this a very special church. And I bless God because there's a lot of that. And may God continue to help that grow and increase. There's a third truth we want to see this morning. God's word is the source of the Christian's life of love. Look, if you will, at verses 23 to 25. This third truth this morning, God's word is the source of the Christian's life of love. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Do you notice how Peter returns once again to what had happened to these believers? You notice he returns once again to their salvation. But now he's wholly focused on what God had done in causing them to be born again. When we say born again, what do we mean? It means that God had given these believers spiritual life. They heard the gospel and God came in and gave them spiritual life and they were, as it were, born again. So to be a Christian is not to be someone who simply embraces a new philosophy or life or someone who starts thinking about Jesus in a different way than they did before. No, to be a Christian is to be someone who possesses the very life of God in your soul. That's the argument we're making. That's the testimony of the Bible. That's what many of us sitting here this morning have experienced and we would love to talk with you about. You see, God caused them to be born again. How, he, how had he done it? How had God done this? He had done it through his word. He had done it through the truth of God's word. Peter says these believers were born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, this is an illustration taken from nature. Just as children are born from the seed of their father, so those who are children of God are born from the seed of God's Word. Only notice that the seed of the human father is a perishable seed, so fathers produce children, but those children grow up and those children die. But those who are the children of God, those who are born of the imperishable seed of God's Word, even though they may experience physical death, they do not ultimately die. They possess eternal life. And so they live with God forever and ever in a much better world. Now to make his point, if you'll notice in verse 24 and 25, Peter quotes the Old Testament passage of Isaiah chapter 40, which Josiah Monfreda read for us earlier in the service. In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming good news to the people of Judah. He's just been telling them that they're going to go into exile. That's bad news. But then in, in chapter 40, he begins to comfort the people of God and letting them know that God is going to again gather them back to be his people. And how could they know that that was true? Well, they could know it was true because God's word is trustworthy. Because God's word never fails. While all the glory of this world, all the pomp, all fade away like a flower that lasts for just a few days and then is gone, the Word of God lasts forever. It is reliable. It remains forever. <laughs> By quoting these verses, Peter was saying that just as God's Word remains forever, so those who have been born again from God's Word will remain forever. The life they've received is an eternal life 
Again, they possess the very life of God within, and that life is as imperishable as is the word of the eternal God. God's eternal word creates eternal life. That's what he's saying. But let me ask you a question at this point. You know, when you look at verse 22, Peter seems to be talking about the responsibility that believers have to love one another earnestly. But then when you look at verses 23 to 25, now he's talking about the reality that the Christians are those who possess the life of God and so they will endure forever because they have this new principle of life. So how, do, how does this fit together? How do these two ideas fit together? Well, you see that connection in the first part of verse 23 where Peter says, since you have been born again. Other translations say, for you have been born again. The argument is that believers are to love one another earnestly because they have been born again and have received this new principle of spiritual life. And here's the question, what is that spiritual life like? And the answer is it's like God. And God is love. And the life that He had produced in us is a life of love. Believers are to love one another to the fullest extent because that is what is consistent with the new life that they have received in Christ. That's this wonderful principle of spiritual life that we have received, and God has caused us to be born again through His living and abiding Word so that we might love as He loves. And so God's Word ultimately then is the source of our life of love because it was God's Word that God used to give us this life. Now, there's so much we could say about everything we've just said, but let's, let's just focus our hearts on three main applications as we conclude the sermon this morning. First application, in our evangelism, we should encourage our family and friends and co-workers to read God's Word for themselves. Friend, if you're here uh, with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you are so welcome and we're so glad that you're here. And one of the things that we would want more for you than anything, is that you would just pick up the Bible for yourself and read it. Just pick it up and read it and hear God's Word speaking into your heart. You see, because many of us could give testimony of the fact that as, it was, as we were reading God's Word, that God, as it were, He just kind of put His Word in us, and He changed us. And what before didn't make any sense, all of a sudden became just crystal clear. And we saw Jesus, and we understood why He came, and we understood that here's, here's the most loving person ever. Why would the most loving person ever be hung on a cross by hateful men? Why? And the answer is because He came to die so that we might be reconciled to God. He came to pay the price for our sins on the cross so that our sins would be covered and paid for, and then He lived a perfect life so that we might have that perfect life, as it were, credited to us before God so that God could look at us and say, you're pleasing to me. Knowing full well all of our failures, no, he doesn't ultimately look at us. He looks at Jesus. And that's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us about Jesus. And we'd encourage you to read that. Christ Fellowship is we're trying to share the good news. We want to proclaim that good news clearly. We want to make it as clear as we can. But don't forget, let's encourage our friends to actually just open the Bible and read it for themselves. It's a way that we can honor them and show that we understand that God is able to speak to them directly through His Word as well. 
There's a second application. Because the glory of this world is quickly passing away, believers should fix their hearts and minds on eternity. You see that in verse 24? Notice what he says there. All flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. What is that? What's well, a picture of impermanence? You know, a flower is there one day, but then the scorching heat hits it, and it's gone, and it never comes again. And how many vast, powerful empires have been exactly the same? Babylon is no more. Rome is no more. The Ottoman Empire is no more. America will not last forever. This is a dying world. And so those who are putting their hope and trust in the things of this world, the money, the pleasure, the possessions, the power, the status, they're putting their hope in something they must one day lose. Either circumstances in their lives will happen and take those things away from them, or they will die and they'll be forced to leave them behind. You see, again, it's a, this is a dying world. And there's no lasting hope here. My friends, we should not live for this world. We should not try to accumulate all the things that we possibly can, only to have them turn to dust before our very eyes. So many people are like a madman, just kind of scratching together mud and sticks and straw, thinking that they're gathering gold. Friends, it's not gold. It doesn't last. It passes away, and we pass away. How foolish to exchange God for gold. You can't keep gold. But those who trust in God are like Mount Zion that abides forever. Those who trust in God, they live with Him forever and ever and ever. You see, there is nothing more logical than that. Just, you're not going to live forever. So if your whole hope is in this world, friend, that's a sad place to be. And we're saying to you this morning, from the bottom of our hearts, with all we have, there's a better hope, and his name is Jesus. And we found him, and he's good. And we urge you to trust in him because he is the one you were made for. And so all your longing after this and that and this and that and all the endless uh, repetition of a lack of satisfaction can be done because Jesus will become to you like a, a spring of water in your soul and he'll just continue to water your life. And you will know the kind of satisfaction that your soul was made for. Oh, and brothers and sisters, let's not let Satan tempt us to try and find our lives here as well. That can happen, right? May God protect us. If you would be saved, third application, if you would be saved, which is to say if you'd have your sins forgiven, if you'd have a restored relationship with God, you must believe the good news of Jesus. So if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, I want you to hear how this passage speaks to you. Look at the end of verse 25. Peter says, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what was it that saved these early Christians and brought them into this reconciled relationship with God? Well, well they heard good news, and the good news was about a person, Jesus Christ, and when they heard about Jesus, they understood that he was the Savior, and they put their trust in him, and they were born anew, made new in Christ. They believed, and they were saved. Again, Christianity is not a religion about how you can make God like you or about how you can make God give you good things. And it's not a philosophy about how to be a successful father or a successful mother 
or successful employee or boss. At its heart, Christianity is a person, and that person is Jesus. He's the one that came into this world. The eternal Son of God became a man and lived among us, living a perfect life, the kind of life we could not have lived, the kind of life we did not live. All of us were made for God, but instead of living for Him, we turned away from Him, and we sought to make this life about ourselves in many different ways, seeking our own happiness, ignoring God and the world that He made, ignoring the God who's keeping us alive even now. All of us have sinned against God, disobeying His commands. And because God is holy and we're not holy, friend, there's no way that we can make up for the sins that we've committed. It's as if you go to a bank and you borrow $50,000, and they say, you owe me $50,000, and you say, it's okay, I won't borrow anymore. No, the debt remains, and that's the problem with our sin. Even if we were never to sin again, all of the sins that we've committed still is on our soul. What hope is there, friends? The hope is Jesus, who came into this world and never sinned who came into this world and always obeyed the will of his Father, who came into this world and loved how earnestly, to the fullest extent of his capacity every single day, and then laid down his life on the cross, bearing the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. And now the offer of salvation is for you, even this morning. If you will trust in Christ this morning, all of your sins can be forgiven. You will be reconciled to God. You will belong to Him. And listen, you'll become a part of the family of God with brothers and sisters. And then for the rest of your life, you'll have the privilege of learning how to love them. And it's something we're learning, right? And it's, it's something that none of us have come to the end of us. None of us know how to do this perfectly, but God is faithful and kind, and He continues to teach us. <clears throat> We're like toddlers stumbling along, and he just holds her hand so that we never fall. He's good. We'd urge you to trust in him today. This is our Savior. This is our King. Well, this morning we've seen that God's desire for Christians is to love one another earnestly to the, the fullest uh, extent possible. COVID-19 has, in many ways, made it difficult, hasn't it? But you know, as we're coming out of this season wisely by God's grace, we want to reconnect. We want to begin again to live life together in close community, loving one another, serving one another, pouring out our lives for one another so that God might be glorified in us. And may God do that good work. May He help us love one another earnestly from a pure heart, even in this coming week. And let's pray.